This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. This show is, in my view, up front, up close, and beyond the badge. Chris Lewis had a very happy childhood growing up doing the things that boys like to do. Football, wrestling, dirt biking, boating, snowmobiling, and oh yeah, school. (laughs) He was raised by parents who believed in humor, hard work, and honesty. He married his high school sweetheart. He found his calling at age 21, policing, joining the Ontario Provincial Police in 1978. Chris worked the front lines, investigations, tactical operations, and command positions. As an OPP officer, he served and protected, to the best of his abilities, a nice, steady career path in a job that took guts, smarts, tenacity, and selflessness. So was that enough for him, staying on that straight and narrow path? Not on your life. On August the 1st, 2010, Chris D. Lewis became commissioner of one of North America's largest police services, the OPP. His commitment to organized crime analysis, his interest in intel, his expertise in all things military, and his forward-thinking command skills combined led him to write a book on leadership, Never Stop on a Hill, earned him a contract with NATO's Joint Warfare Center in Norway, and landed him a pivotal role on television, that of public safety analyst for a major Canadian network. Chris Lewis joins us now in conversation. Chris, it's so great to have you with us. How are you? I'm great, Anna. Good to talk to you. Let's go back in time. And, and in our case, yours and mine, it's way back in time. When I was a little girl, I played cops and robbers. Did you? I, well, absolutely, I did. <laughs> uh, I was probably the robber more so than the cop, but uh, yeah, we, we certainly did. You know, And I always liked to read stories about police and investigations, and I liked all the cop shows of the day, whether it be Mannix or whatever those shows were. And so it really, really drew me to policing at a very young age. You did a lot between that time where you were playing cops and robbers and when you actually entered the OPP in 1978. What were you doing? How were you growing and emerging as a as a solid young man? Well, after I graduated from high school, I really planned on going to university, but I, I finished it during the middle of the winter because of the semester system. So I got a job actually on a tugboat in Detroit through a friend of my dad's, and uh, I started making so much money. I was making more than my father was at the time. And uh, so I started sailing in the Great Lakes and thought, well, I'll go to university later. And uh, then subsequently joined the OPP in 78 and never did go to university full time. In fact, Chris, you have a quote. Here it is. I'm a high school grad from Sault Ste. Marie. There'll never be a commissioner again in the history of the OPP who's a high school grad and not a university grad. Well, I'm convinced of that, and, and you know, I, which in some respects I suppose is sad because I think I did pretty good as commissioner. But, but let's face it, most of the applicants and most of the incoming members of any police service have either college, university, or both, uh, and so that that really is the feeder group. It's not mandatory, but. Uh, over time, you get to the point where almost everybody has a degree or college uh, or both. And so that's probably where the future is heading with the, the executive branch of policing. What drew you to the OPP? Did it have something to do with where you were born and raised? 
Well, I'm a northern boy, and I only knew police, two police departments, you know, until I was 18 and, and moved to Detroit. But, and that was the Sault Ste. Marie Police Department and the OPP. And the Sault Ste. Marie Police Department only hired maybe one person a year. Uh, and generally it was people that were good hockey players. That was, I think, the first question on the employment interview was, what position do you play? Uh, again, great police department, but they didn't hire often. So I, I thought, no, I'll go OPP, and, and I'll end up somewhere else in Ontario, and that's what happened. Why did you want to be a police officer? I, from a very young age, I, I was just fascinated with policing. There's more kind of the excitement in it. You know, over time, I, you know, I, I heard the, you know, the buzzwords like helping people and contributing to society. And, and without a doubt, that was a big part of my career. But I'll be totally honest, it was all the excitement. You know, it was me thinking policing was all about chasing bad guys, arresting murderers, and kicking doors in. But I, over the years, I got to learn that policing is so much more than that. Let's talk about what you did in those early days. So there was frontline service delivery, so you may have kicked down a couple of doors here and there and arrested some bad guys. But there was also investigative disciplines, tactical ops, and a number of command positions in investigations and organized crime and field operations. To me, that sounds complicated and it sounds difficult. How was that for you? Well, it was really, really exciting indeed. I got almost addicted to job change because by the time I had four, five years service, I was in my third posting uh, and uh, was a member of the tactics and rescue unit. And a few years after that, I was doing wiretaps and and polygraph examinations and all sorts of stuff. So the opportunities in the OPP for me were endless, and I worked hard and, and applied and, and ended up getting selected, very fortunately, for many of those jobs. So I kind of, with no intention on building myself up, uh, you know, towards a goal of being a commander of in, in any way, I just went to jobs that looked really interesting to me, And but that subsequently gave me a very strong background for what was to come in terms of, a leadership role. Brain versus brawn. And, you know, you think about uh, police officers, and it often is a combination of, of both. How was that for you? Was it more physical, or was it more of the, the sort of tactical, in, intellectual aspect of policing? Well, you know, I'm not a big man. I'm 5'10", and I, when I joined the OBP, I was 170 pounds. And I, I've gained a few pounds since, but I didn't get any taller. Uh, so, I mean, I always try to keep in shape, and fitness has always been a part of my life, but I wasn't a big, strong guy. Uh, and so, other than the physical demands of becoming a tactical officer, uh, the job wasn't really physical for me. It really was, you know, if I could talk four guys into getting out of the car and not beating me up, uh, I would. Uh, you know, it's, and that's one of the things about the OPP. When you're in the middle of nowhere at four in the morning, you're in the middle of nowhere. And so you just don't press a button and have a bunch of cars show up and, you know, drag all the bad guys out of the car. You have to try and talk your way through those things. So, and that's my personality anyway. You know, there's a time to get tough. And, but if I didn't have to, then I didn't. And I tried to talk my way through situations. You didn't have a gun put to your head to become an officer, but did you ever have a gun put to your head, Chris? Never had a gun put to my head. I, I was shot at on tactical calls. Um, and that, you know, when you go to a tactical call, you, you go with 11 other guys that are all highly trained, physically fit and armed to the teeth. Um, so those were very more controlled situations, but certainly had shots fired 
uh, over my head, uh, never got hit, uh, never had to shoot anybody myself, but I certainly pointed my gun and, and gave commands to uh, several bad guys over the years in those situations. Uh, you know, very seldom, let's face it, most police officers, even today, most police officers never have to use lethal force. They'd rather not ever have to. Uh, once in a while, they might have to, but uh, it, it, held, it happens very seldom in the, the policing world in this country. Can we talk about how different the OPP is from most other police services just by virtue of geography and and personnel? How would you characterize the OPP then when you were a, a young officer and now retired commissioner? But the OPP is so large, so diverse. Um, it polices, uh, you know, hundreds of municipalities across Ontario as the local police, many First Nations communities as well, uh, and also provides uh, specialty uh, operations, investigations, tactics, aviation, etc., to municipal departments all over Ontario. So. You know, you can you can work in London, Ontario, and work on the 401 and respond to calls in a First Nations territory, or you can work in a little community in northern Ontario where there's only a handful of officers policing 24/7 and largely what's a you know, very desolate area. So, it, the opportunities to learn from every one of those locations and experiences is tremendous. And of course, with the OPP, you're looking at over 9,000 personnel, and there's not a specialty unit or kind of expertise in policing anywhere in this country that isn't within the OPP. So it really has a lot to offer communities and a lot to offer its personnel. When we come back, a life and death situation for Chris Lewis having nothing to do with policing. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. We're back with Chris Lewis, uh, retired OPP commissioner, and so much more. So, Chris, we now are further into your career with the Ontario Provincial Police. The year 2000, a diagnosis comes your way that is life-altering. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, in, in 2000, I... I uh... Was suffer- I had been suffering with headaches for a number of years, but never migraine level, just annoyance headaches that just never seemed to go away. And my doctor uh, said, you're working too hard, you're not sleeping well, you know, you need meds. Uh, wonderful doctor, I'm not being critical of him, but I felt there was something more serious. And inevitably, months into that, he gave me a, a range for a CAT scan. And within hours, all hell broke loose, and, and I was going through MRIs and more testing because they found a tumor on the bottom of the frontal lobe of my brain. So, you know, fast forward, within a month or so, I was having surgery, and then I ended up being off for a number of months because it, I couldn't drive. I had, you know, a lot of rehabilitation to do, and uh, but it was benign. Uh, so scary as it was, I got all through all that, but it certainly taught me a lot of lessons on a personal level about people and about, you know, the fact that there are people out there that are suffering from illnesses and, and, and disabilities and, and we need to support them and trying to make them the best they can be. Did you fear for your life at that point and, and in a way that would be very different from from being out there behind a badge? 
For sure. I, I mean, I thought my career was probably over. I thought I might die. I didn't know whether I'd ever be able to drive a car again or, or you know, be physical. I, I couldn't exercise or anything for months because they cut off quite a chunk of the side of my head uh, to get at the brain. And then, of course, put it all back and put what I like to call drywall compound on the crack and, and, and my beautiful thick locks of hair covered all that up. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I had to work hard to get back because I just wasn't ready to not be a part of the OPP anymore. But, but thankfully, at that point in my career, I was a superintendent. I was, you know, mostly behind a desk and not out, you know, in doing physical uh, police work or exerting myself in any way. So I was able to get through it, even though it certainly changed me physically uh, forever. How did it change your relationship with Angie Howe? You were living with her. She, at that point, was also a member of the Ontario Provincial Police. What changed? Well, we had been living together for, uh, I guess, about five, four or five years at that point. And, and really, she had never been married. I had. Um, we weren't really even talking about getting married. We certainly thought we were in it for the long haul. But... But at that time, because I thought I was dying, um, my daughters, uh, two daughters that were at the time were living in Australia with my ex-wife, uh, they convinced me to to uh, ask Angie to marry me. They, they love her. And, uh, and so I thought, well, I'm not going to make it anyway. I'll buy her a ring, ask her to marry me. I did. And uh, a few months or a month or so later, I had surgery and lived, so I had to follow through and actually com- complete the marriage. And so we've been happy ever since. Does it help that she comes from and is cut from the same cloth, if you will, also uh, having spent a good deal of time in powerful positions with the OPP? Well, I think it helped us both. I mean, Mike, uh, I'm older than her, and I was, you know, certainly ranks ahead of her uh, at different times in our careers. And uh, so I had a lot to offer her in terms of advice and, you know, a shoulder or an ear or whatever, and vice versa. Because, you know, when you're when you're dealing with as deputy commissioner or commissioner of the OPP, you're dealing with a lot of stressful issues and and it's sometimes it's tough to bring those issues home and talk to a spouse about them that doesn't really understand the complexities. You know, and that's not a criticism of anybody, but with Anne, she got it. You know, and in the latter years, she was sitting at the executive table in a high rank, and and so she, you know, she, she was a good sounding board for me and, and and me for her, and so we we worked together to get through those years. So the year 2000 was one for the books, that is for sure. And thank goodness you, you got through that and with the help of and love and support of your family and friends and of Ange as well. So 2010, you are tapped to be commissioner of the OPP. How did that happen? Well, I was away on a motorcycle trip with my wife and, and three other couples. We were in northern New York State. And uh, I had been interviewed. There had been shortlisting and headhunting and government interview processes. And, and I knew I was going to find out whether – I knew I was kind of in the final group of two or three that were in the running. Uh, and I knew I'd hear soon. And, and I thought I felt really good. I thought I had done well. Uh, but I felt that way at other times in my career. It didn't fare so well. So you never really know. And the deputy minister of the day called me on the motorcycle trip and said uh, – when can you be back? The premier wants to announce that you're the new commissioner of the OPP. Wow. Um, so I went, you know, motorcycled home, and two days later I was at Queen's Park, and 
and the Premier McGinty of the day uh, made the announcement, and I, I began. I shortly thereafter replaced Commissioner Fantino and took over the helm of the OPP. What lessons learned from your brain tumor incident were you able to bring forward in terms of your bag of leadership skills, if you will? Uh, you know, I, I, it, it was an interesting study in people because I certainly had friends I expected to hear from and didn't uh, because they just were uncomfortable talking to me. And, and I get that. And, and I had people just kind of appear out of nowhere that maybe I didn't even necessarily like, but they were there to try and help and support and offer that. And, and so that, even though I've always been a people person, Anne, and I've always been supportive of others, I, I think that really, in my mind, it changed me in terms of like almost an overwhelming urge to reach out to help to support um, people that are going were going through difficult circumstances. And that, in conjunction with issues I faced in my career with traumatic incidents and some of the, the problems we had internally around those and personally around those situations, that really that kind of got me on a... Uh, a mission to not save the world, but at least try to, in every way possible, support our people through tough times, personally and professionally. Yeah, and as commissioner for four years, here's a quote that I came across that I think applies to how you led the troops, if you will. Quote, if there isn't strong leadership, morale suffers. Yeah, that's true. You know, if you think of your own career or or our, our lives, even because it's you know leadership is like how is really all about how you treat people and that can apply to your personal life as well as your professional life but you know when, when you're if you don't feel valued and understood and your boss doesn't even know your name or never even talks to you and you know you just don't feel like you count in the organization you're not going to come to work every day wanting to be your best and do your best and so professionalism and productivity and your overall morale can suffer. And that's not a good thing for any organization. So trying your best to communicate and, and build trust and effectively lead people and build their morale, make them feel valued and inspired to be their best is, is con- contributes greatly to a healthy organization. And with 9,000 people in the OPP, that was always a challenge, but hey, you got to do what you can and, and do your very best and if you make mistakes, learn from it, and then try and lead the troops towards success. And as Commissioner Chris Lewis, you oversaw frontline policing, traffic and marine operations, uh, emergency response, specialized and multi-jurisdictional investigations throughout this big province, including service to 324 municipalities, highways and waterways, and as you mentioned, 9,000 personnel. Did you have like a war room that you put together that would help you kind of keep all of the pieces of this amazing OPP puzzle together? Well, you know, the structure was was such that every area had someone in charge at some level, and they reported up through a chain to other people who were in charge of broader areas. And, and then, so ultimately, it was a big leadership team uh, of about 200 senior officers uh, with different reporting mechanisms. And, of course, we really encouraged communication uh, up through and, and down through the chain, uh, you know, really trying to work through problems together as a team. And then ultimately the senior executive, the four deputies and myself would, you know, take all that information, all that input, and then have to make decisions that, you know, would kind of shape the future of the organization. 
Why did you retire in 2014? Well, I, I was facing some health issues at the time. I ended up having some serious uh, abdominal surgery uh, a year after I retired. Uh, the doctor of the day told me he wouldn't do the surgery if I was still working and, and living a fairly unhealthy lifestyle in terms of hours worked and you know diet and traveling all over. Uh, and we had a couple of deputy commissioners that were ready to take the helm. And, and so I thought, you know, this, this might, and there was nothing big happening, no problems that I was kind of running from. So I thought, now's the time. I'm going to pull the plug, look after my health, and one of these guys will take over and do a great job. And, of course, that was Vince Hawks, and he did. And um, and I just and I decided to move on. And it was just, I had 36 years service, you know, and, and uh, very few of my original class were even on the job anymore at that point. So it was time for me to go. And time for you to spread your wings. You ended up uh, writing, I believe, your first book. I know that there are more in the works. And it was called, is called Never Stop on a Hill, a book about leadership. What, what was that? Why that particular phrase, never stop on a hill? Well, it was, I, I believe that life and leadership are a series of hills and valleys, good times and bad. And once, once in a while in life or in a leadership position, you face those, those hills, those mountains that you just seem like you can never get over, whether it be a health challenge, you know, family issues. Uh, and on and on, uh, just such a variety of things. And so you have to work hard to get through them and not give up. And as a leader, if you're not working hard to get the people you lead through those difficult times, you're going to fail then and fail as an organization. So that was where the, the kind of the heading came from. And a very quick story, my youngest daughter, who's a captain in the Air Force now, and you know what the Air Force is all about, <laughs> giving you your dad's role, um, she, uh, as a little kid, wanted to run with me. And, and when she did, if we got to a hill at first, she'd say, well, let's walk up the hill, Daddy. And I said, don't ever let the hill beat you, honey. Get up to the top of the hill, and then we'll walk. How's that? And she, on she'd go. So this became a thing with her and I, to never stop on a hill. And, and we still talk about it. It's tattooed in her foot, and it became the title of my book. Oh, I think that's an incredible story and really a family affair because the profits of the book went to Special Olympics Ontario. Why did you choose that organization? Well, I've been involved with Special Olympics for years through the Ontario Torch Front for Special Olympics, uh, Law Enforcement Torch Front, I should say. I chaired that uh, committee for the Ontario Association Chiefs of Police for a number of years. And my youngest brother, Robbie, who's staying with me right now, is 54, my kid brother, and uh, he's a Special Olympic athlete and uh, lives in the Sioux most of the time with us part of the year. And... uh, and so he's been very involved since the beginning of Special Olympics and uh, in cross-country skiing. And so that became kind of my my pet project, my my charity of choice, so to speak. And uh, so I, I donated all the profits and made several thousand dollars to Special Olympics, which is wonderful. That's beautiful. 2017, and I think that you're still on contract with this organization, NATO's Joint Warfare Center in Norway. What's that all about? Well, it's, it's like the Ontario Police College in Ontario. NATO has a college where they train officers in various aspects of warfare, and uh, which includes all sorts of things besides fighting. And um, they have a big college in, uh, in Stavanger, Norway, and uh, they hire a number of people to come in and that have expertise in different areas. Mine in the civilian policing world, which is, of course, is very different than the military policing world. And uh, so I, I helped them in, in, in that role in developing uh, training scenarios and, uh, 
and uh, um, basically exercises to help train senior officers from around the world, the military officers, in, in trying to deal with those issues in their day-to-day jobs. So having left the OPP, you really haven't left the role that you found and created for yourself within that organization. You are speaking around the world. You also have landed what I think is a really terrific job and a very timely one, CTV's public safety analyst. What What's that for you? And why is that intriguing to you and sometimes a little scary for us as we listen to the things that you say and your analysis of world events and local events that are going on that can scare the bejeebers out of all of us. But why is that an important role for you? Well, I've always had a great relationship with the media. You know, I can think back to your days coming to interview true team officers and canine units way back when. And But I've always felt that the police and the media have to have a little bit better relationship than we did at some points over the years. So I've always been open and honest with the media, and I've always enjoyed talking to the media, even in bad times. So when I was looking at retiring, I had some discussions with some senior folks at CTV, and 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 of course we developed this title, public safety analyst. I didn't want to be called an expert in anything because that's just not who I am. And it's about me bringing kind of reality to situations to the public and, and communicating with them in a way. It's kind of a known person, I guess, at the time, because I'd been commissioner and they heard me speak a lot, uh, to try and, you know, uh, just educate the, pe- the public out there as to what these situations are and not necessarily have them running and hiding in the basement every time something bad happens. But maybe there was a time for that, too. So, so I've enjoyed that interaction and, and being able to communicate that way. Let's look at the world today. And in generalities, we're just beginning to maybe see the light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the pandemic. We are under veiled threats or obvious threats from all kinds of organizations, countries, groups. I think about Russia. I think about China. I think about North Korea. There are terrible things happening in Afghanistan, and it does affect us, and it does affect other countries in North America. What's your analysis of the safety of the world and its people right now? Well, I, without a doubt, we're in a very precarious situation across the world, just given everything you just said. And the pandemic alone has affected people in so many ways, including mental health, and that's had some impact on on police calls for service and, and uh, domestic disturbances and, and crimes that people may not have committed in a different uh, time. And of course, the you know terrorism and some of the problems in the Middle East that have led to terrorist acts in this country affect public safety. But I, I think that the, the key message in all of those things is that the people are in good hands. You know, governments, regardless of political stripes, working with the police, trying to keep communities safe, working with other safety organizations and public health and and educators, etc. We're in good hands. Yeah, there's bad times and there's going to be bad times, but you have to know that everyone's working together to try and keep times as and people as safe as possible. Uh, and, of course, respect the public's right to privacy and a lot of things, but we need the public's help in all that, too. I say we. I'm no longer in the in the policing world, but but we'll get through all this and, and we'll, we'll be as strong or stronger than we've ever been in this country. And uh, we don't need to hide in the basement and avoid the world to try and avoid bad things because they, they still will be fairly rare. 
Is it fair to say, and this is something I saw on your Twitter, if plan A didn't work, the alphabet has 25 more letters, stay cool. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, yeah. I mean, we have, to, we have to know things are going to happen, be prepared to deal with them, have plans in place and, and contingency plans if they don't work. And we'll always pull a rabbit out of a hat. Will some people be hurt and will bad things happen to some? Undoubtedly, as they always have, you know, through centuries and centuries. So, but we're Canada, we're strong, and we'll, we'll get through this together as a group. Former OPP commissioner and now CTV's public safety analyst and so much in between, Chris D. Lewis, thank you for joining us in conversation. Thank you, Ann. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.